0: But, you know, that's the thing about elk hunting that's it's always amazing is you just, you can bust your butt for two weeks and you just get to the point like, I'm, I'm not going to kill an elk. This is just, it's not my year. It's not going to happen. And then five minutes later, thump, you kill a bull. Like, wow, that was easy. So it's always funny, the contrast between you just killing yourself and getting nowhere and then all of a sudden you shoot a bull and like, wow, that was easy. <laughs>
1: What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome to the Elk Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Rich. And if you're new here, this podcast feed is a place for all of the elk hunting interviews that I've done over the last six or seven years. Some are Wapiti Wednesdays, some are from my original podcast. But I wanted to compile the largest collection of elk hunting knowledge and interviews ever put together, which is pretty cool. And I would love your guys' help getting it out there to the world. So if you could do me a huge favor, uh, this is a new feed. So go look leave it a five-star review, and maybe tell a friend about it. But thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you guys enjoy this elk hunting podcast. All righty, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing?
0: Very good. Very good. Been busy since that time of year. No, Idaho, we're lucky we get to hunt. uh, We get to bait bears here and hunt bears in the spring. So busy with that, busy with a business venture, busy with my assignment. So it's been, it's been crazy.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I've had like a, a, I would love to bait bear someday just as like, I know it's way harder than people think, you know, and like, I've just no experience with it. And I, you know, it's my buddy, Robert Hanneman. He's he was, uh, he's was. he been telling me about it and, and whatnot. And I don't know. It's just something I've been interested in for sure for a long time. Uh, from what I hear, it's much harder than people think.
0: Well, you know, I think pe- most people's perspective, you you fly into Canada and then a guide puts you in a stand and you shoot a bear. And you, yeah. not, you don't have a lot of work invested. And when you do it on, on your own, especially, you know, down here in the lower 48 on public land, I mean, there's there's hunting pressure there's other people out there baiting. So it, it's a lot of work and the, the best bait, you've got to pack your bait in, you know, a mile or so on your back, you know, and sometimes it's two or three trips. So it makes for a very long day and there's weeks and weeks of setup before you actually hunt. So, it, it, so it's much more rewarding when you, you've got a lot of sweat equity invested and, yeah. um, you know, because the, the hunt, I, you know, I, I can't say it's anticlimactic. You still have to do everything right and with the wind and and sit still and make the shot. And but um, you know, it's it's not like a, like getting a shot at an elk where where it's you know you just never know how it's going to go. But, <laughs> You know, once you put your the more work you put in up front, the easier the bear hunt is. You know, when the hunt actually starts. For sure, for sure, it's
1: totally understandable. Well, I got you on today. We're going to talk about elk hunting and uh, your book, Bow Hunting Modern Elk. Uh, one of my good friends, Sean Mellon, he like he that's his Bible. I think he's got every page marked. Uh, and so he's the one that turned me on to your book, and it's a great book. Uh, I guess we're gonna we're gonna dive into that. Give us a little bit of background. I would say you know, Bow Hunting Modern Elk, uh, different than some tactics, some in the same. Uh, there's a few specific key things I want to dive into, but like, as far as background for yourself, what's kind of your elk hunting background, so to speak?
0: Well, I mean, I think the largest among those, and I mean, one of the huge advantages I have over a lot of outdoor riders is I was a guide and outfitter for 23 years in the Gila region of New Mexico. So, yeah, I've got unlimited antidote and, and um, you know, I've seen every scenario under the sun guiding hunters. So, um, you know, and that's, I think that was pretty evident in that book. You know, that, that's, um, that's all, you know, lots of experience from guiding, not just drawing a tag every other year and, and hunting myself for a week or two, you know, that's just, um, uh, months and months and years and years of, of nonstop elk hunting, uh, yeah. guiding, guiding nurse. So I, I think that really gives it some really deep insight, you know, I think, and, Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've noticed about elk hunters is they seem to get stuck in a single rut. Like you'll have guys that want to do nothing, but sit on water holes. You'll have guys that want to do nothing, but call. And I think, you know, I really stress that throughout that book that you've got, if you're going to be consistently successful, you need to be you know, a better rounded hunter. You've got to have a deeper bag of tricks and, and um you know, go with the flow because I've showed up on hunts where you think you're gonna call or sit on a water hole or whatever and things just don't go right. It rains and the water holes are no good, the gets hot and the bulls get tight lipped and so you really you've gotta be you've gotta be very flexible and you've gotta be, you know, willing to try other tactics that maybe aren't as fun. <laughs> you know, if if you want to be successful, because you know, calling up elk is like the ultimate, obviously. And for other people that aren't maybe in the greatest of physical shape, I mean, sitting on a waterhole is very successful. But you know, there's there's so many other angles to it, and you know, and like I said, some of them aren't as fun. You know, and you get super hot weather and tight lipped bulls, and you have to um, start you know glassing and spotting stalking like you're hunting meal deer obviously not as fun as chasing bugling bulls or if it gets super hot and you got to get into the black timber and still hunt that's even less fun <laughs> but it, it can be successful and sometimes you got to do what you got to do you know
1: yeah and i think the real i'm 100 percent agree i am very much a student of the game and that i really want to learn all the techniques and kind of implement them uh, and even if I find one that works, I've found systems that work for me. I'm still very interested in, and in trying new things and, and testing new stuff out. Um, I think the real key is knowing when to pull which trick out of the bag. Uh, and that can be really hard. It's like knowing when you need to switch it up and when you need to start still hunting or when you need to like sit on glass and, and, like, make these executive decisions of, like, okay, we got to change up the game plan because this clearly isn't working. And, I mean, sometimes it's, like, it's clear as day, but I think a lot of times it's the subtle, like, differences in time. It's like not spending five days doing the wrong thing on a seven-day hunt is pretty key to being successful.
0: Right. And you, you really need to be able to read the situation and, and um, roll with it. And, you know, that's especially true with calling. I think, I think the biggest Problem with calling, and I you could you could apply this to any species. I mean, turkey hunting and, and elk hunting are much alike, but it, it's you've got a lot of people out there calling that don't know what they're relating to that animal. There, there are a lot of people out there calling that aren't able to read what that animal is telling them, and you know, again, the guiding thing that's just where years and years of experience come in. I mean, Gila bulls down in New Mexico they got called to a lot and not necessarily even by hunters. There's just a lot of guys frustrated because they couldn't draw tags. So they just go out and call in bulls for fun. Yeah. And so, you know, you had some, I hate to use the word educated, but you had some bulls that were pretty call savvy. And I mean, while I was guiding, I mean, I carried calls everywhere I went, but I didn't use them that often, but still I managed to call in bulls and, for, for clients, it just, you would see a certain set of circumstances and go, all right, this is going to work right now. You know,
1: what is something that would like scream a calling circumstance to you? now, obviously this is coming from fairly open country hunting, or I guess, you know, it's all situational dependent. It's, it's really hard to say, but like, I'm trying to like wrap my head around like, what makes you say, oh man, this is the perfect time to throw out a Cal call?
0: Well, you know, I can give you two examples. So you know, I remember I was guiding an editor and we got into a situation where there's about 40 cows and 15 bulls and they're going berserk. And he was kind of one of those backseat drivers that that he had hunted on some private ranches in Colorado and stuff like that. So he thought he knew what he was doing because he had killed some elk. And, you know, I, I just wanted to do a straightforward stock. There was so much chaos going on. I, I felt real confident that we could get in and maybe not necessarily kill the herd bull, but kill a bull, which, you know, he, the the guy I had with me was, he, he would shot anything that made Pope and Young. And, you know, here's like five or six, 300 plus bulls and maybe like a 340 herd bull. So we're sneaking in and he's behind me going, hey, 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 let's sit up and call. Let's sit up and call. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Let's just sneak in there and kill a bull. No, 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 let's set up and call. And he kept pesting me where I just kind of like, okay. Do what you want. We set up and called, boom, the whole thing went silent. I mean, look, someone flipped a switch, boom, dead, done, we're done. Whereas, you know, and I just kind of had this sneaking suspicion that area got hunted fairly hard. I just had this sneaking suspicion we introduced some calling to this situation and it, it's going to make them back off, which is exactly what happened. And, you know, it, if I'd been by myself, I probably would have killed an elk, but you know, I'd be pressured to do what the client wanted, so that that's what happened. So take another situation where a client and I had and this was a guy I used to tell tell guys, especially bow hunting, when we were hunting elk, I said the the more robot like you are, the more like you are to kill an elk. You stay on my rear and you do what I tell you to, you'll kill an elk. And don't argue with me, don't second guess me, just follow me so i had a good client and we we had dogged this this is about a 350 bull we had dogged that bull all morning and it was getting it was getting pretty late it was about 10 it was getting hot and i knew it was it was going to fall apart and you know they're gonna they're gonna bad and shut up i mean we had this bull 20 yards a couple times just no shot with brush so and you know as predicted they went silent and kind of pushed the situation probably a little harder than I should have. I knew they were in a bedding area, and I I kind of kept still hunting along. And we ended up jumping the cow. And, you know, the cows thunder off in one direction and standing there going, oh, just screwed this up. That was dumb. And as the cows are, are thundering off in one direction, we hear the bull start bugling from the other direction. He had somehow, I guess he went embedded separately from the cows. And you know, one, we had nothing to lose. Another, I'm thinking, huh, this is probably a prime opportunity here. We have managed to accidentally get between this bull and his cows. And if I can make him believe that I'm an intruding bull, might make something happen. So I started calling he started calling back, and I just basically started mocking him. I was in – I just – everything he did, I did. And anything he did, I did louder. And, I mean, we're talking two minutes, and here he comes. And I told the client, knock an arrow, follow me, get ready. This is going to happen. And I'm sneaking up this bottom. I see him running off the hill. I collapse onto my knees, and I, you know, over my shoulder, said, dry your bow, dry your bow. And I'm laying there, you know, folded up as small as I can make my six foot five frame. (laughs) And he's right behind me. And I have no idea if he's drawn his bow or not. And the bull comes walking down the trail right at us and stops. When he stops, the bull's hooves are two foot from my nose. (laughs) And I'm laying there the whole time kind of scared. I'm going to get kicked in the face because I'm. There's still, I don't know if he's at full draw or not because I would have taken the frontal shot at that range, especially. And you know, I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and all of a sudden the bull blows up. And just as he spins, the guy shot and shot him right in the armpit. He didn't get out of sight. He killed the bull. Dang, and I, said, awesome. I didn't know what you were, I said, I didn't know what you were doing back there. And he says, I didn't want to take the frontal shot. You always know, here not to take frontal shots. I said, well, at that range, I think you would have been safe because, you know, you have to hit that soft spot on the chest and it's not very big, but I think it's six foot, you know, you could probably hit it. But he said that bull dipped his nose down and actually sniffed me between my shoulder blades and that's when he, that's when he blew up, but he was ready and he said, I didn't even aim. I just, I just thrust my fist at his armpit and, and released and it went right where I was pointing, you know? No, that's so, freaking crazy. You know, two, two, situa- two situations were, you know, I just, one, I didn't feel like it was going to work and it didn't. The other one, I said, I think this is a great opportunity. Let's go for it. And boom. I mean, it was fast, you know?
1: Yeah. I think so, that's a, that's a really great tactic when, and th- it happens more than you would think where you end up splitting a bull from his cows. You know, a lot of times midday bull goes off, he'll bed by him. He'll leave the bed by himself or sometimes he's going to water and you know, he, you bump the cows or, and that always happens because they always see you before when you're trying to sneak up and uh, you know, the bull's off. If you can get between them, I've done as, as far as like chasing the cows off uh, cause I knew like it was over. Cow stood up and one was running and like they might as well all be running and you know, full on just chased to run, to get between the cows and the bull and then start screaming and causing ruckus because you know he doesn't know if it's a person. I mean, he probably likely thinks in that situation he hasn't been bumped a lot. He likely thinks it's another bull that came in there and now is you know running cows around or whatever it may be. uh man, that that's a great great tactic. And I, I I've been in that situation a couple of times. I've been in both where it like works out and I've been in where it doesn't work out. You know, it's, it's kind of a it's one of those things where hey, everything just went to hell in a handbasket. Let's try to make the best of a bad situation. Hey guys, real quick interruption to tell you a little secret that I picked up. And if you want to be a good elk hunter, there's one thing that I've noticed that every great hunter I've ever interviewed does that almost every new elk hunter does not do. And it's having a system. And in my own quest to become a better hunter, I set out to learn from all the best hunters out there. And the one thing they all have is a system that took them years to develop. If you want the blueprint that I've developed after hundreds of interviews, go check out the new Elkhunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for being a more successful hunter. This is the fast track that took most of these guys 10 plus years to develop and even myself so go check it out elk hunt 201 links in the show notes i hope you guys enjoy it so far people have loved it from new hunters to vets i've had so many messages and seems to be a a big hit so i hope you guys enjoy it hope it adds value to your elk hunting career
0: yeah i don't know if that's something i would spend too much time trying to do on purpose no for sure no 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 you know being able to read the situation you know instead of throwing your hands up and like oh i just blew it you know being able to read the situation like all right this is might work to my advantage and you know that's the biggest part of of calling and it's also the most difficult part is gaining that experience to where you do recognize your opening and um there's just certain situations where you're just absolutely better off keeping the calls in your pack, and um, and you know, there's no no way for me to really say here's five rules for that. It's just experience and reading the situation and, and recognizing when when a bull might be vulnerable. Yeah, I mean,
1: good decisions come from making a lot of bad ones.
0: That's regional too, because. Um, you know, up here where I live in northern Idaho now, it's basically like Roosevelt's hunting here. It's it's (laughs) very thick. The the, um, elk live in reproduction um, clear-cut logging country. Mm. And um, they, you know, they go out in the clear cuts and open meadows and stuff this time of year, but you know, by the time they're hard-horned, they know where they're safe. They don't spend a lot of time out in the open clear cuts, where You know, you could actually glass them up in stock, but um, you know, they, they burrow into that, the thickest, nastiest, like 20, 25-year-old um, clear cut that you can't see 20 yards. So, you know, calling's really important here. So, you know, it becomes a game of numbers. I mean, you really have no choice because you're not going to spot and stalk bulls here on a regular basis. A lot of still hunting up old logging roads. So you really have to depend on calls to bring that bull out into a a, a shooting lane and i know here it's really common oh say i call in 10 bulls in a season you're going to get one shot out of that it's really common to call bulls in here to 20 25 yards and not have a shot and well you know and here's a situation another situation reading reading what you what you have going on in front of you and a couple years ago i was you know, hunting here in, in Northern Idaho. And I had wrecked my shoulder the year before. I was only shooting about 53 pounds. Um, it's recovered now. I'm back to my normal 70 pounds. But I had this—I dogged a bull all morning, couldn't get on him, wasn't responding to calls at all. I mean, he was actually making them recede. but I was able to stay on him and maintain contact. And he holed up in this really super nasty spot. And he was bugling just often enough, you know, so that I could keep my bearings. So I slithered in there. It took me a couple of hours. And I mean, by now, it's like noon. It was really unusual that he was still talking. And so I get in the middle of this. I finally find him. He's about 25 yards away, and I could barely see him. And I start glassing, and I see he has a couple cows with him. So obviously, one of those cows was probably coming into asterisk. And that's why he was vocal. That's why he was hovering over her. So I thought, well, you know, there's no way I'm going to sneak up on these things. It's too noisy and, and, and thick in here. So I stuck the bugling tube in my arm, picked muffle up a little bit, and I just felt out this real squeaky
1: you know,
0: young bull bugle. And, of course, he starts talking, talking. So we're going back and forth, and then I, I get louder and louder. We go back and forth for 20 minutes. He, he's not budging. He's hanging out with those cows, and for whatever reason, the cows just decided to make a break for it. Maybe they decided I sounded better. Or they just wanted away from that bull. Who knows? They they, the cows started to come to me, and as soon as that happened, that bull was going to come kick my butt. But that bull came in. he's a good bull for this part of the world. About a three thirty six by six. That bull came into nine yards. I had him at nine yards for fifteen minutes and I did not kill him. I could not <laughs> I couldn't take the shot. There was if I'd been shooting seventy pounds, I would have clipped the back end the back side of his shoulder and I would have killed him, but with fifty three I just wasn't confident enough to do that. So he finally made a move and you know at nine yards. I, you know, tried to draw my bow and it blew, blew right up. But, yeah, that was a pretty interesting, you know, scenario of, of, um, calls working and that, I guarantee you that bull had been hunted hard. That was a really easy, accessible over the counter area. So. Yeah, um,
1: that is crazy. Nine yards can get a shot. Um, one of the things you were mentioning and actually I wanted to bring it up anyway, was, uh, in chapter seven, you talk about dogging the herd or dogging elk, um, Explain to people what that means and, and I want to dive into that and kind of talk about your perspective on that.
0: yeah dogging is actually my favorite way of hunting elk. and basically where we started doing that a lot in the Gila where you know the Gila's not necessarily wide open. you have wide open areas but then it can get pretty thick in a hurry you know you get into the um, pinon juniper or you know even into the, the the pines but what dogging is is you've got a herd bull has a bunch of cows and maybe he has a couple satellite bulls you know hanging around the fringes but you are not going to call that herd bull in you know and i can't emphasize that enough because that's one of the problems of educating elk is people calling to elk that are are never in this lifetime going to come into them that herd bull is not going to leave 40 cows to come investigate your call so, you might call in satellite bulls i now' definitely done that, and so what dogging is is you're basically you're using his bugles to maintain contact to maintain your bearings, and you are just you're chasing that bull and you're trying to to um, weasel your way into the herd and get a shot at that bull and it's absolutely the most challenging elk hunting there is because you got so many eyes, but it's also just as fun as elk hunting gets for me, especially if you have a bull that's talking really well. And I've definitely killed, you know, I'd say all my best bulls, you know, dogging. And because they're, they're the they're the whole the herd bulls that, that are just really hard to kill. But it's, you know, it's a lot of stealth, a lot of endurance. You know, one thing people have to understand is an elk walks faster than you run. (laughs) So if you've got, if you've got a herd that's going somewhere, usually, you know, they have a, a feeding nighttime feeding area, say a bunch of meadows or a farm field or whatever. And then they're heading to bedding areas and elk are so big. I mean, they don't think anything of going six or seven miles to go to a bedding area. And, you know, you're just basically trying to maintain contact, trying to catch up and then, you know, usually late in the morning, unless, you know, you're, unless you just have terrain where you're able to cut them off somehow. And then, you know, when, once you, you engage that herd, once you start running into elk and you can see elk and then you, you know, you're weaving and sneaking through the herd, trying to get to the herd bull. And to me, it's just the ultimate, it, to me, it's the ultimate elk honey. Yeah. And, um, and especially if you have some satellite bulls in there that are causing a ruckus. And I mean, it can, it can really get fun. Really. I
1: want to, I want to talk about moving within a herd. Um, I think that's one of the most underrated skills and probably the least talked about uh, out of anything. Um, you know, it's very difficult to, to keep a, keep up with the herd, a, keep up with the herd and not get seen and, you know, just keep a low profile, not a, let alone, you know, try not to get bumped satellites or push stuff through. So, um when when you start dogging a herd, do you have a preferred time of day. Do you like when they're coming from bed to feed or feed to bed, or you know, like, or is it just like, hey, let's get on this um, bull you know, as it, soon as I can? You
0: know, you 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 just get on them when you can get on them, but the you know the wind is everything, obviously. So, a, a big part of Successfully dogging now because you've got to really develop a feel for wind, and you've got to be, you've got to develop a, an ability to read how terrain and sunlight is going to change the wind as you're moving. And sometimes you you've got to gamble. Other times, you know, you're like, "This looks like a wind trap. I better circle just to be sure. And, yeah. You know, insurance. Like I'm going to hit that." I'm going to hit that sunny hillside over there and the wind's going to be going, the thermals are going to be going up instead of down. I better circle up uphill or you're going to go into a shady draw and, you know, it's going to get cooler in there. The thermals are going to be falling. I better circle and get down below just as insurance because you charge right in and the wind changes unexpectedly and boom, it's done, you know, which is what happens most of the time. I, the wind is always what gets you. Um, well, I shouldn't say always. I mean, every once in a while, you just bump bump one. But you know, there are two calls can help you. I've I've just ran smack into spikes or a young cow, and you know, you give her a, a little cow chirp and settles them right down, and and they go about their business. But um,
1: I was gonna say, what's your? I mean, do you worry about satellite bulls, or do you like when you're trying to move? most of the time I'm going to try to paint a picture for people. that's not like as visual, but uh you're dogging a herd, you're following the herd, you're, you know, maybe a hundred yards, 200 yards, kind of as they're moving through, you're keeping the wind, right. But obviously like the, one of the big problems is you almost always run into satellite bulls. And most of the time, <laughs> cows, like the cows. yeah, cows. I mean, cows are detrimental. I feel like I can get away with more with satellite bulls than I can with cows. Like cows is like, Oh, don't let a cow see you. A spike sees you and he's not a part of the herd. I mean, I had to go, I've had it go multiple ways. I've, you know, been dogging a herd and all of a sudden there's a spike standing there 15 yards away from me and he's a hundred yards away from the herd, but decides it's a great idea to run right through the middle of the herd. Um, you know, those things happen, but I've also, I've also had raghorns that, you know, look right at me, run away. I keep stalking, dogging a herd. And then they, here, here comes that raghorn again, like just no idea. So I would say it's like, I always tend to, if I can make sure they're going to spook away from the herd, I don't really care if I bump uh, uh, a satellite, but I'm curious like what your thoughts are if you, if you try to. Yeah,
0: I, you know, I think as a general rule, I'd try not to spook anything, but I've, I've noticed that, you know, big herds, they tend to not place as much trust in younger animals. Like, if you bust a couple calves and they run right through the middle of the herd, odds are it's going to be ignored. Yep. Or, you know, a spike or something like that, where they just think, ah, oh, he's just being a teenager. He's, he's being a goofball, you know. Yep. But you you bump the wrong cow, an older, wise cow, and they're going to follow her. They're going to follow her lead. So, yep. you know, that's a big part of it, too. But, um, you know, I've actually had, you know, bumping animals turn into an advantage it creates a distraction but um you know you know that's the other thing about dogging too when you get into a herd i mean you have to be very aggressive again they they walk faster than, than we run so i mean this isn't like a white tail tippy toe you know stock. i mean you're making pretty bold moves i mean sometimes you're actually running you know, you might run 50 yards to get into some cover before they come out of a, a draw or maybe they go over a lip of some terrain and you just run over there as hard as you can at the same time trying to be quiet. <laughs> and you can get away with a lot more with a herd of elk because they're making noise themselves. So, I mean, you don't, it doesn't have to be whitetail stealth, yeah. but, you know, you try to be as quiet as possible. I mean, back in the old days, we used to take our boots off and run around in our socks. Now they make, um, Oh, like Rancho Safari makes the cat prowlers, you know, the, the booty things you pull over the top of your boots that, that have padding in the bottom. And, and, um, you know, use those now that I'm older, I don't want to run around in my socks. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny because I've heard uh, more than one occasion I've heard stories of guys that take their boots off and leave them somewhere and then they can't find them later yep, I've yep. I, uh, yeah I've been there Yeah, I used to tie them on my pack I was like no way am I leaving my boots somewhere that you have to you know backtrack a mile or something
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. or just <laughs> even leaving your pack is a bad idea you never know I mean <laughs> elk can wander a long way it's like just take everything with you. Like it's not that heavy.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, uh pack can cause problems, you know. You gotta be careful what you put in your pack, obviously, so it's not make a noise, but um water bottles are really bad. I mean, sloshing and but yeah. um Yeah, no, it's it's uh it's really hard to explain to especially guys from back east that have been stalking, let's say, whitetails. Mm-hmm. would be their real their only real touchstone is and you know we've all hunted deer you know stalking even mule deer in the high country i mean that's a three hour long um cat creep you know whereas with an elk you're on your feet you're moving you're you know they fall into some cover and you run to the next piece of cover and you're just you're it's a very aggressive um and you can get away with, with a lot I mean there's so much confusion going on within a herd I mean I've I've um you know made a fairly bold move through the gap of a couple trees within sight of elk you know they just there's so much peripherals going on with them they're not just keyed into every single little movement so you can sometimes get away with pretty big moves and, yeah. and you have to I mean there's no way you're going to keep up and there's no way you're going to you know, if, if a bull starts moving through the herd and you see an opportunity like, man, if I can get to that little point of trees right there, I can cut him off and get my shot. I mean, you got you to take that chance and make, make that move. But, you know, at the same time, you really, you've you got to be able to soak up everything that's going on around you. Because, you know, if you do run over a cow, it's going to, odds are it's going to screw things up. So <laughs>
1: when, when you try to make your final approach, your final move, uh, do you prefer to do so on a herd that's moving from point A to point B? Or do you like to dog the herd and wait until they kind of get to where they're going and then try to slip in?
0: Uh, you know, it all. It, it, every situation is different. I mean, you're constantly trying to close the gap. And, you know, it depends on terrain. And, it, and you know, there's if you get a herd that's kind of stalled out somewhere and is, is milling, it's, it's definitely easier. But, I mean, there's other instances where – You know, I, I can remember when I killed my, um, my 367 bull, he, they all, he was bringing up the rear. I was kind of following him. The wind, you know, I couldn't move where I wanted to because of the wind and they dropped over the the lip of a, a Canyon. And I went, wow, here's my opportunity. And I ran, I literally ran over there, peeked over the edge and there he is like, oh my God, after all of this, this is so easy. Plump, thump thump. you know? Yeah. So. You know it just really depends on on the terrain as a big part of it, and you know it's always the wind you know and that's the other part of you know, yes, when is the best time you know technically, the best time is very early in the morning or very late in the evening when when the thermals have settled. that's the problem usually in these in these situations by the time you catch up, it's usually late morning and you know say. 8:30 30 or 9 and that's when thermals start shifting and things get really tricky and that's when you really have to think ahead you just you get you get into this tunnel vision where you're trying to close the gap on this bull but you really got to think things through all right the you know sunshine's you know hitting this hillside where i'm standing and they're going to go into that draw. you really got to in- anticipate what are the thermals going to do when i get there and you know it, plan accordingly. So it it's a it's a real you gotta use your brain, that's probably what's fun about it too. You know, you gotta use your instincts and well that's another thing too, I should probably bring up there is trust your instincts. Cause I've got one buddy in particular that I hunt with and and he's a whitetail guy. He um hunts with nothing but, but primitive gear and he will not sit in a tree stand and he kills a big buck every year um stalking on the ground with recurves, but he, he lives in Kansas, but when he goes elk hunting with me, he drives me crazy because he wants to overthink everything. He wants to stop and have powwows. And I'm just like, dude, I am <laughs> with my instincts quit breaking my rhythm, you know, yeah. quit, you know,
1: you know, one so, of the, one yeah, of the things yeah. with dog in the herd, um, I've seen a lot of people make mistakes And by a lot of people make mistakes, I mean, I've seen myself do it. uh, Is that, you know, the inherent timeline of following a herd and getting a shot opportunity looks a lot like I find elk bugling at daylight because that's when they're bugling, and I get close to said herd. You know, late morning because that's how long it took me to walk that far. Uh, I finally catch up to said elk with late morning, which equals wind shift, swirly, swirly, and elk about to bed right. down. So super hyper aware, and things go sideways. You know, it's like so. Like going back, you had kind of talked about like managing that timeline and just and thinking ahead three steps. I think that's a big one. I really do. I I would rather you know you can make attacks. Early morning, when elk are moving faster, in my opinion, I think they can, you know, they see less, they're less aware, there's more chaos going down than, you know, when you first start to settle down or whatever. Like when they first go to bed or like start to like mill around, like they're very like looking around, making sure that, you know, it's a safe area. And if you're, that's the time you're trying to make that approach. It's the wind is going to be swirling because, like you said, the sun's now up, it's starting to change, the thermals are shifting, which they haven't shifted completely. So it's just swirly, swirly. Uh, and so it's like, like you said, you know, managing your timeline is really, really important. Or just thinking about that, like, hey, am I going to make it to this herd in time to make a strike, or should I just wait a little bit?
0: Well, and that's one of the things where I tell people elk hunting, you can't be in good enough shape to elk hunt. I mean, when I was guiding, I could run a marathon without training. I'm getting older now, and I can't do that anymore, but it's still very important to, to keep yourself in the best shape possible. Because of that, you you know, like where I'm sitting on, on my back porch, I'm looking across a canyon where I often see elk on these benches over here. It's three miles over there. If I wake up at the very first light and I glass across there and see a big bull, I have to get over there as quickly as possible, or I'm not going to get there in time to even be in the game. So, you know, at first light, you get on a bull bugling, or you glass a big herd out in a meadow. You got to run. You got to get there as quickly as possible. Time is of the essence But you lollygag over there. You may get into the game, but you just lost an hour that you could have been maneuvering in, instead of just, you know, walking over there. Yeah. So, yeah, you know you you have you have a limited time frame uh evenings are maybe even worse because it's gonna get dark and you have to quit shooting at some point, so although you know I tend to like evenings because it's like the hunting gets better with each half hour, whereas in the morning it's the opposite it gets so, worse, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just gonna get hotter and worse as you go in the evening, it just gets better, yeah, and you know. Even getting on a on a herd and you know darkness falls and you're on a herd and they're going berserk. I mean that's still a good thing. You know where they are. You know where to come back. You got you got a um, a line for the morning, but um, I've always enjoyed evening much more. But yeah, it's about fifty fifty on. Kills morning to evening so i can't say one's better than the other i just enjoy evenings better yeah uh one of the things i want to
1: ask you a little bit about is um the gila so one of our patreons uh one of our listeners uh drew a he actually won a hunt with me and we're and then from there it was like okay let's ha- put him in for some tags and we ended up putting in new mexico and he drew a 16b early tag so uh the we've been kind of talking a little bit about that, hunt. We've been kind of going over strategies and whatnot. Uh, so since you have quite a bit of experience there, I'd love to pick your band a little bit um, on that. I mean, I don't have, I've hunted in Mexico a few times. And it's very different than what I grew up hunting. Uh, similar to some of the Montana stuff, but at the end of the day, it's like, it's this whole new beast. Uh, it's a, you know, the wilderness hunt's it's pretty crazy. Uh been scouting a little bit. seems really, like you said, it's not open, but it's, it's not all timber either. Um, you know, a lot of remote terrain, uh, in your opinion on that early Gila hunt, w- should I be looking at calling or just glassing?
0: I, uh, you know, depending on what, what, you know, you never know what the weather, but uh, I would be looking at water holes for sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's interesting you
1: say that. Cause when I, I looked at it, it seemed like there was a lot of water.
0: Yeah, there is, but, um, they're always going to have their favorite water holes. And, you know, if if you get down there in early September, I mean, it's New Mexico after all. I mean, it can be 85, 90 degrees in the middle of the day. It's, it's, um, that early season can be pretty hot or or not, you know, you never know. I I mean, you definitely have wet years and it, it sounds like they're back in that cycle, which is when I guided down there, when I started, I should say guiding down there in the, in the um, early to mid 80s it was wet we were in el nino years and it, it's funny because i can remember complaining to a rancher that and when it, we started getting droughty and they're like man this is terrible it's you know this is it felt droughty and dry and he laughed at me and he said you kids that grew up during that el nino years don't understand this is normal <laughs> this is the dry and the heat but Anyway, so yeah, yeah, you never know. It sounds like they're maybe back into a wet cycle down there again. And moisture's definitely improved, but even then, you know, wallows. Even if there's too much water, find wallows. Wallows work really well down in that part of the world, and if nothing else, just a place to kind of hang out and wait for them to get fired up and, and then go after them. Um, there's a lot of country up in the, you know, Mesa Country up above the Middle Fork of the of the Gila. And um, you know, backside of Black Mountain and stuff, where where you can get up on little knobs and glass for miles. I mean, very effective out there. I mean, you ought to be doing a lot of glassing off of mesa edges, off of little knobs that you can find out in the flats, because there's there's a lot of flat mesa country out there. Yeah. And um, and it, I can discuss with you some very specific places <laughs> that, uh, after we finish up here. Yeah. So yeah. um, and it, but you're going to be doing a lot of walking. I mean, there's only, unlike up here where I live in, in Idaho, where there's a road in every canyon and on every ridge. I mean, there's only like five main arteries in that whole country. Yeah, so it's pretty remote. So you're gonna do you're gonna do a lot of walking. Do you feel like
1: horses uh, are a strategic advantage mm-hmm. or no?
0: I've hunted that unit both ways. I mean, we used to pack in, of course. A big part of that, too. You know, you're dealing with clients that aren't in very good shape. So, I mean, places where when my buddies and I were hunting, where we would park the truck and walk in and out in a day, we had to pack in with horses with clients because they can't they can't do that kind of mileage. Yeah. And um, But the problem with horses is you got to deal with them. Oh, for sure. Unless you have a, a wrangler with you. But once you pack in someplace, you're kind of stuck there for yeah. at least a couple of days. Whereas... If you're in good enough shape and you can cover the country, you can use the road systems. I mean, sometimes we get up in the morning and drive 30 miles, you know, yeah. let's go check this spot out. And then, you know, you're in and out. I mean, we're talking like 10, 15 mile round trip days. Yeah. And, um, and then once you get into them, you can hunt there a few days and then, you know, but that country, it's kind of hard to explain to people because they think, oh, it's the Gila, it's the Gila is, it's. it's you know, one of the greatest places to hunt elk in the world. Well, it is, but what people don't realize is not heavy population density there. Yeah. I mean, places like Idaho, Montana, mountains, and Colorado, I mean, there's, they have a lot more elk than they have in New Mexico. So you've got to cover a lot of country just to get into elk. And the other problem that you have is, you know, you may get into a big, huge herd and big wild time, and the next day they're gone. They've moved. <laughs> seven miles, 10 miles, you know? Yeah. And so you got the, the hunting that country, you don't hunt that country slow and methodical. You, you walk at a fast walk all day long until you get into sign or hear some bugling. And then you slow down and hunt. You're just basically, you're covering country until you actually get into elk. You find fresh, fresh, yeah. fresh sign. And you hear, you hear bugling, then you slow down, start hunting. But other than that, man, you're just covering ground. This is hard as you can go.
1: You know, and I've talked so, about this a lot with, uh, in other places, you know, I, I do feel like a lot of people spend so much time, you know, it's like your whitetail hunter buddy, I'm a or uh, your Kansas buddy, I don't know if you're hunting whitetail or mule deer, but he, uh, you know, when the guys that they hunt every inch, you know, and they, they hunt five miles, they hunt really hard. Whereas like, sometimes you have to go with your gut and say, I got to walk through this five miles to get to the better one mile. Uh, and I've, I've had, I've had that experience in, in New Mexico as well, where it's, yeah, you know, it's, you got to cover a lot of ground to find elk. And that's actually where I don't like horses. Uh, horses are great for packing out elk. That's a, That's my argument to the day I die. But, um, when it comes to that, it's like, you know, you get packed in somewhere, like you said, you can hunt say you on a 10 mile radius that's a big radius around camp that still may only encompass two herds of elk maybe three herds of elk for you know what that you know area is depending uh but like you said like now you're stuck there you know whereas if you could drive 30 miles and and hike you know 5 miles in or whatever it may be uh you could cover more ground that way
0: oh yeah i mean we always we always establish a base camp where you have you know, all your big supplies and your main water supply and all that. And, and then we spike it out a lot. And the other thing I do in the Gila that, that, um, used to scare some of my buddies, but I mean, that's, I did it a lot. I would carry enough stuff in my pack, you know, very minimal minimalist stuff, but I'd carry enough stuff in my pack to where if I got into a really hot herd, I'm going to stay there overnight. So you're looking at like a little two-pound bicyclist um, sleeping bag and a piece of a piece of um, plastic sheeting to make a little tent <laughs> if you need and then dehydrated food and water and a, and a little tiny um, you know, stove and, and a titanium cup or something to boil water. And if I get on a herd and I'm eight miles in, I'm not going to walk back to the truck and then walk back there again in the morning. I'm going to nah. stay there. A lot of people don't, but I don't know for some reason it just scares them. They don't like that, you know?
1: Oh, that's my MO. I'm all about it. And actually it's funny cause I did a podcast with some guys that drew the same tag. Uh, and now, so it's going to be like, they were picking my brain on advice and now it's really going to come full circle to make sure I'm right. But I still believe that like, you know, having a base camp, being able to be mobile, uh, and then, you know, dog and herds like you, you know, like you talk about, but like with a pack and it's lightweight, minimalist as you can go. And, And basically I'm fine doing 20 mile loops and just, you know, loop, loop, loop and glass, 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 cover ground. Look for, I think, you know, that's one thing I hadn't thought about yet is like, I should probably the heat of the day, that early September, uh, check every water hole, you know, sleeping's overrated, go check every water hole, go check every wallow, uh, and just look for that sign and then glass early morning, late evening. Have you found much luck in that country glassing midday?
0: Oh, you know, occasionally I've found bedded bulls, but, um, you know, you're usually getting up so early. I mean, you're up by three, so yeah. usually mid mid day, I'm taking a nap. I mean, you've got to, yeah. to survive because, you know, you, you get up at three in the morning and, and, um, start hiking into, to an area and listening for bugles off of ridge points and stuff. And then, you know, you're chasing hard until 10, 11. And doing a little bit of scouting. I mean, by midday you really need a nap because you know by the time you hunt evening and by the time you walk out and get back to camp, I mean it, it can be midnight a lot. You only get three or four hours of sleep sometimes, so you no. got to have those midday naps. No. Eventually, you know, or you're just gonna you get so drained you can, you can no longer function, and then you're worthless, you know. So or, you, you, do, make, you, or you make you make bad speed.
1: decisions, which is even worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I just find, you just get so fatigued that that. Uh, it's very easy to let yourself get defeated, you know?
1: Yeah. In that country, do you feel like the biggest bulls are, sh- when do, the, when do you feel like they show up to the herds? Are they off on their own that first week of September? Or are they starting to like poke around? I yeah. Mean- you're going
0: to, you're going to find bachelor groups. You're going to probably see, you know, any of any so-called at that time herd bulls are probably not going to be the very biggest bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, And really that early, that early season. I mean, when I guided the biggest bulls we killed were always on water holes. Um, They don't, the big, big bulls, you know, the booners, they don't come out of the woodwork until things cool down a tad. And, and, um, you know, that, that second part of the season. And, you know, when I look back on New Mexico, they didn't, they didn't split the seasons before I left you, you had a 20 day season. I look back on most of the bulls they killed in New Mexico. It was all in the last three or four days of the season. So <laughs> that that first that first season, I mean, I've definitely gotten on and seen big bulls. I mean, they're just not rutting as hard and they are harder to, to approach. But water holes, um, sit on the right water hole on the right day it can almost be too easy.
1: Yeah. Do you what time I mean, are they hitting midday or are a lot of those bulls still hitting at night?
0: Uh, evening, morning, you never know. I mean, I can, I can remember one time we were packed into a wilderness and, um, we had to filter our water. There was two little slimy ponds. We had to filter all of our water to survive back there. And so we had done it, you know, we done it all morning. My buddy and I told the other guys, we're going to go run down and pump water. It's our turn. And it was like noon. We're sitting there pumping water. And I hear a splash. I look across the pond and there's like a 360 bull standing there looking at us. Oh. You know, like well, 12, 12 noon, you know. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Crazy. Uh, no shots. Oh, we didn't take our boat. We had <laughs> hands of jugs and pumps and stuff, you know. So, oh, that's the worst. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, uh, and we just looked at each other and, like, oh, great. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, that's I mean, funny. The whole water pole thing is kind of funny because when I first started guiding in in the early '80s, we just we just called and and dogged elk. That's all we did, and it used it actually back in those days. It was difficult to book hunters in New Mexico because they think New Mexico is one big giant desert, and they're like elk in New Mexico. And this is back when it was unreal good, and. So then we, you know, we started booking more hunters that got to the point to where we didn't have enough guides to deal with them. So, I mean, to be completely honest, we were kind of just dumping guys on water holes to get rid of them for a while until we could fill some tags and get back to them. (laughs) Well, then lo and behold, these guys started killing elk and big elk. We're like, huh, this is interesting. Yeah. So then we started hunting water holes more and more on purpose. And with very few exceptions, all the biggest bulls that were ever killed while I was guiding were all killed off of water holes.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It's like kind of, um, it's it's not taboo. It's like people frown upon it, but some of the biggest bulls come from water holes. I don't know that I have the patience to sit water holes.
0: Yeah, well, you know, there's some places. I mean, like Arizona, those guys don't seem to know how to hunt elk any other way. <laughs> that's true. And it kinda of gotten that it kinda of gotten that way in New Mexico. By the time I quit guiding, there was fist developing over water holes. And it, i mean, it got kinda of out of hand. Because that's all anyone wanted to do. Yeah,
1: all those places in Arizona like twenty some cameras on each water hole. I don't know. It's part of me is like,
0: that's why it gets a bad rap. Uh I don't know. Yeah, people fist fighting. Uh, my tree stand was here first. and I mean, I had a client sitting on a water hole one time because he, he was just out of shape. He couldn't run around. And he's sitting on a water hole. I mean, we'd, I'd had the tree stand there since June, which, again, I kind of don't like that either, but I was an outfitter and I had to do what I had to do. But, you know, he's sitting in a tree stand and some dude just walks up and waves at him and sits on the other end of the pond. Like, he thinks that's just okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, my client comes walking out and said, yeah, some other dude walked up, walked up and I walked over there and talked to the guy and he says, it's public land. I can do what I want. And I said, "But what about common courtesy, man? Yeah. And, you know, he, he thought we were the bad guys, you know. Uh, but yeah. Was, and that is a problem. You know, public land, I, people just don't seem to have the manners they used to. Right? From fishing to hunting to whatever. I mean, if I pull up in a place and that I want to hunt or fish and someone's already there. Right? I go somewhere else. I don't want to, I don't want company Yeah, no, exactly. mentality, you know?
1: Oh man, you should, uh, you should go hunt Colorado rifle seasons. You'd be like in for a real shock. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, rifle season here. But, um, I've only gone once. I agreed to take a buddy. And after that one morning, I said, I'll never do this again. I, <laughs> I didn't even feel safe. It was crazy. People looking at you through their scopes and, uh, it it's is it's crazy.
1: crazy and it's like i mean it's uh, pretty par for the course of what's going on in the rest of the world today but it's like that mob mentality that some of these rifle hunts have where it's like okay well everyone else is doing it, so i'll just do it and you're like it just breeds stupidity i swear
0: yeah the, the, i don't know people aren't as polite as they used to be that's for sure yeah of, you know i think i think people who live in big cities just kind of get used to bullying their way through life maybe and i, I don't know what comes from it's, it's um yeah yeah I, you know, I don't know what to say about it i just don't get it <laughs> i mean when i was outfitting i mean i had situations where i can remember i had a guy sitting up on a water hole a bunch of wallows in a water hole and in new mexico it's legal not in the wilderness it's legal if you kill an animal you're they allow you to drive off the road to retrieve it they'd rather you not waste meat than you know mm-hmm. drive off the road and so anyways, there was a, someone had driven up there, you know, at some point in the, in the past and they, and obviously muddy, they made ruts. So then a road developed. Well, forest service came in and blocked it off, put signs, you know, no motor vehicles, blah, blah, blah. So I'm parked there waiting for my guy that's sitting in the water hole. And this whole fleet of four wheelers starts driving around me. I'm going to drive around the barrier past the signs. And I jumped out of the truck and I said, Hey, what are you doing? They, oh, we're going to drive up here. And I said, this road is closed. Can't you see that? Like, well, oh, who put you in charge? You know, that, that <laughs> attitude. And I said, well, I have a guy sitting up there. I would rather you not. And he goes, it's public land. I can do what you want. I do what I want. And I said, all right, that's fine. I'm going to run down to the Forest Service while you're in there and notify him And then they turned around and laugh. But they cussing at me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> signs funny. that say no motor vehicles, and they're driving right around them. You know, yeah. while I'm parked there. Yeah, I, I just don't get people. You know, it's amazing.
1: Alrighty, one last story. Uh, biggest bull from New Mexico.
0: Do you have any good? My story? biggest bull. Yeah. Actually, that's a good one because I um I had seen this bull a couple of times, and apparently a couple of other guys had too. Whenever I killed that bull, there were some really mad guys, but. Um, it, it's a the bull was a set, 7 by 8 scores 386, and I had seen him a couple times. I knew he was in the area, and I found a couple wallows up on top of a ridge on the spent line. I thought, I'm going to get out there early, and I'm going to sit on these wallows and take a nap, because you know elk sign all over them, and it was in that area that bull, that bull had been using. So I, I was sitting there, and I fell asleep. Soon I hear thumping and flashing and I, I sit up and there's two bulls in this wall, one of them that, the seven by eight. And I, oh my god, oh my god, you know. So I I grab my bow and don't get a shot. They won't they won't stand broadside and then they hop the fence and they they wander off. And this is early, like maybe four or something. So I grab gotta grab all my stuff and I sneak down there, kind of the direction they went, and then I hear a bugle lay off. I said, it can't be him, but at least I got a bugle going. Now it's, you know, maybe 4.30. You know, good good early start. So I sneak down there. Takes me a while to catch up with them. And I find this big, huge herd out in the wide open meadow. And one of them is is this big bull. And so I'm sitting there on the edge of this meadow. There's no way I can get to them. Just watching them, it's getting dark quickly. And I thought, ah, just... I around, I start cow calling. Bulls uninterested, of course. And I do this for about 10, 15 minutes. It's getting darker by the minute. And here comes two cows peel off the herd and start moving towards me. So I'm still thinking, well, this isn't going to amount to anything, but I can entertain myself with these cows. So I keep calling and the cows keep coming closer and closer. And I don't even have an arrow knock. My bow's just sitting beside me in the grass and I'm playing with these cows and the bulls like 100 yards away and these cows get out to about 60 yards and all of a sudden this bull starts screaming and he comes charging over and i'm like oh man he's going to cut them back into the herd i knock an arrow get my rangefinder ready and he circles around to cut those cows back into the herd and i hit him with the cow call he stops broadside ranged it thump, thumped him. it Sixty yards on the dot, which was the longest shot I'd ever made on elk at the time. But <laughs> I'd been practicing. I had been shooting jackrabbits when I lived in New Mexico. That I spent my summer shooting jackrabbits. That was my, my training. Yeah. And it's um it was really good training. You know, small targets and and long shots and um you know real targets and a little bit of pressure. And so I was really confident. And but anyway, I. I thumped that bull 60 yards because I called in these two cows and he came to cut them back into the herd and it was just one of those things where I'm just sitting there like nope this isn't happening I'm done for the day and I'm just gonna play with these cows and it ended up working out you know but you know that's the thing about elk hunting that's it's always amazing is you just you can bust your butt for two weeks and you just get to the point like eh, I'm not gonna kill an elk this is just it's not my year it's not gonna happen and then Five minutes later, thump, you kill a bull. Like, wow, that was easy. So it's always funny, the contrast between you just killing yourself and getting nowhere and then all of a sudden you shoot a bull and like, wow, that was easy.
1: Yeah, that (laughs) is like the most accurate statement ever said on this podcast. It's like, you know, when least when you least expect it, it's gonna be like, whoa, that just happened. You know, like, I cannot believe it. And it's funny because you work so hard for all year or whatever years. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh holy crap that feeling when it when it kind of comes together and you launch that arrow and you watch that ball fall you're like okay that just happened you know it's the, the best feeling well
0: it's funny because you you know you felt hopeless this whole time like like you haven't even had had a close encounter yeah and then all of a sudden you shoot a bull and you're like oh man that was too easy i shouldn't have shot him i should have waited for a bigger one and then you know then you're like you idiot you're just you know saying i'm gonna kill a spike last week now you're you know complaining about a 320 bull or something. Yeah. Oh, I should have held off. That was too easy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, so accurate. Uh, well, thank you, Patrick, for jumping on the podcast. If anybody hasn't yet, I highly recommend picking up his book. It's Peterson bowhuntings, uh, bowhunting modern elk. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Is, is that the best place to get it? Would you like people to shop somewhere else? You
0: know, I, you know, I haven't paid attention because, um, you know, that company got out of the publishing business, and then, you know, I was trying to get the rights back to it so I could do a revision. They wouldn't give it to me, and um, I, it's out of print, but it's interesting because I've gotten on, like, eBay and Amazon, and I've seen copies going for 65 or $70, which kind of blows my mind. But, yeah, um,
1: that's funny because I just like jumped on Amazon right now. It's like $70. Holy crap.
0: It kind of it's weird it's its like it's become kind of a cult classic kind of thing with the elk hunters i mean even larry d jones himself you know gave it huge praise and so it's kind of fun, it was kind of really um really cool to do something and, and and have it so well received but yeah i would like one of these days i need to do a revision of that i think by copyright law i think i can Changed 25 percent of it and own it again but i just haven't been able to get the rights back to it which i don't know why because they're not doing anything so with it so it's kind of a little frustrating but um like that's always in the back of my head i need to update it because that was oh i don't know 10 or 15 years ago now and some of the oh some of the hot spots Information is probably fairly valid still, but it could definitely be updated. And especially the equipment part of it could definitely be updated. So. And I've gained some more perspective, you know, hunting in Idaho, you know. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's It's in the back of my head.
1: No, well, it's a great book. I think it's a classic. Uh, yeah. Like you said, I know, f- I know f- a fair number of people that like hold that as the Holy grail. So uh, it's a great book. I'm sure prices are going to skyrocket now that we did a podcast about it. Uh, <laughs> so, so I should have just, I, this is what I should do is like get uh, a podcast scheduled by the rest of the books and then uh, do a podcast with that person and sell them for like twice as much. I did uh, what, I guess that elk of North America book uh, has like, we've talked about it a couple of times on podcast and it's like, Skyrocketed! I should have bought multiple copies. Uh, But I think I only have like ten copies of my own. You uh, know, you should sell them on eBay. (laughs) Wait until he gets to a
0: hundred and start selling them.
1: Uh, give it a week. Uh, Alrighty, Patrick, thank you so much uh, again, and we'll put links to show notes uh, or links in the show notes for everything, guys. If you want to check out his book, uh, I'll link to it. It's a bit expensive right now, but uh, maybe you can steal a copy somewhere. Uh, I wonder if there's any in a library somewhere. But anyway. Thank you so much again, and uh, thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me.
1: All righty. All righty, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Elk Hunt podcast. If you love elk hunting content, tips and tactics, all that jazz, then go leave this podcast a review wherever you listen to podcasts at. Much appreciated. And if you're interested, go check out our Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a great resource and it's going to make you a better hunter. I guarantee that, or we'll refund your money. Uh, If you don't get anything out of it, if you don't get $30 out of it, then we'll definitely refund your money. So go check it out. Link in the show notes.